0: Hi, welcome to Life Struggles. On this show, we interview or just chat with people who have mental and physical health issues, addictions, relationship problems, and anything else that life may bring you as a struggle. We give hope and our own advice to others from our own achievements. Our goal is for you not to feel alone in your struggle. Our guests range from actors, authors, professionals, and ordinary people like me. At the end of this podcast, if you would please hit our bell, that little bell up there, so that you will be notified of any new episodes that drop. And also, if you would give us a rating, we would deeply appreciate it. And now, please help me in welcoming our next guest. Hi, this is Christy with Life Struggles. And before we begin, I just want to tell you a little bit about my next guest. Her name is Sky Nicholson. She wrote the book. Um, unexpected Alchemy, Poems of Addiction and Awakening and Elemental alch- Alchemy, a guided journal for transformation. They're both available on Amazon. I'm just going to real quickly read you the description from the back cover. Sky's writing is magical. She brings you to the depth of your emotions and the pain, yet magic of being a human. This poetry collection is a gorgeous work of soulful inspiration. I dare you not to be moved when you're reading it. In this wonderful collection of poetry, Skye Nicholson beautifully illustrates her incredible life transformation not only through her words, but also through their artistic arrangement on the page. So when we're finished, I am going to give you the link so that you can purchase her book. Hey. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Um, welcome, everybody. This is Sky. I was given a brief introduction of your book, a little bit about it. Great. So, now before we start talking they know a little bit about what we're going to talk about but that's not the whole story right
1: Yeah right Right
0: so Anyway thank you for coming on I so much appreciate it So thank where you would having- you
1: like to begin would you like to begin at the beginning where everything started Uh well I'm not really sure what what the beginning <laughs> what the beginning would be Um I guess I could tell you a little bit about where I'm at now, and then maybe we could back up to whatever seems natural. So uh, I uh, made the decision to take alcohol out of the driver's seat of my life in January 7th of 2018. So that'll almost be five years. Five years.
0: Congratulations.
1: Yeah, thank you. And so now um what I do is I work as an empowerment coach for women. So I help other women that are working to make some sort of transition or change in their life and access their own personal power work towards their own goals. And so um yeah, oh, I've Is written- that?
0: Are you talking about like like um life coaching or are you talking about Because I I guess I was kind of under the impression that you're also a fitness coach for women.
1: Um, I am not a fitness coach. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Life coaching. um, I like the term empowerment coach. I think that, um, you know, life coach, it always seems to me like, well, there's so much under that umbrella. So um, there is, there
0: is, I'm a life coach Yeah. and yes, there's a lot of different categories. Exactly. And so you focus on recovery?
1: Well, that's one piece that I focus on is, um, and I don't really, I wouldn't really say that it's necessarily recovery as such um, as shifting out of negative behavior patterns and um, alcohol use is definitely one of those things that people use. You know, I think that a lot of us, turn to um numbing tools to help us deal with the things in our lives and we all do yeah yeah i mean everybody does you know i mean in
0: some in some way or another you choose you choose what it is
1: yeah exactly and um so for me that was alcohol for a long time and i wasn't necessarily aware at the time that that's what i was doing it wasn't a conscious um knowing that i was my issues I, I think in hindsight, you know that becomes very clear so um so one thing that I do is I help I help women that are um struggling with navigating that area of uh if they're using alcohol or other things like food, for example mm-hmm. um as a way to quote unquote deal with their as their multi-tool to deal with their problems and so getting underneath that, taking away whatever that substance is, then that's when you have the actual issues that you're dealing with.
0: Okay. So mine's sugar. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I it's a very tough, it. tu- yeah. it's very, very tough addiction for me. I, a lot of people laugh at me when I tell them that was, that is what my addiction is. I have a lot of addiction in my family. I have the genes all over the place. So, but I think I'm the only one with sugar. <laughs> um, you know, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's gambling. You know, I think the only one we don't have is sex. You know, when you go down the whole line of them. Um, but when whenever I've talked to somebody in my podcast, you know, and I, I tell them I do come from an addiction family and I actually, um, I'm, I'm afraid of alcohol and drugs because of the gene.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, i watched it all my life from the time I was a very young girl growing up around it in our family. And I just saw destruction, destruction, destruction. And I just was too afraid to ever go there. So, um, I mean, I'm not ashamed ashamed of that, that I was afraid to go there. I watched so much destruction that it was, I was like, why would I even want to try, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't realize until about five years ago, and maybe it's just because I had some life changing, I, I had my youngest one uh, go away to college and I became an empty nester. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it wasn't hard for the first two, but the last one out of the home, and that's it. Um, but in any time that I got sad, you know, or upset, I... Immediately had to find chocolate chip cookies or run down to the store. I would run down the store. It didn't matter what time the night it was, but to get a Hershey's candy bar, you know. Um, my my husband started seeing when I was getting upset over stuff, he would just automatically go get me something <laughs> without even telling me he was going. And he knew that that changed my mood immediately. But, you know, that sounds kind of funny. But when you think about it, so my cholesterol rose, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, I was getting, I was becoming borderline diabetic. So it was something that was still harming me. Mm -hmm. And and then I found out one night that I really was addicted because I like was going to sneak out of the house at four o'clock in the morning to go get me something, Mm -hmm. you know, sugar. But regardless, why would I need to sneak, you know? Mm -hmm but for some reason i i felt that need to to sneak and there's nobody here to tell me no you can't have sugar
1: mm-hmm.
0: that was in my own mind
1: mm-hmm. so
0: you know and to me an addiction is an addiction um and there's a lot of different ones however um i do i do know that especially in the last 2 years it's it's risen a lot with both drugs and and alcohol um so can we go back to your beginning was there something that triggered that to begin with or is that a a gene that you just fell
1: into and
0: found out that it helped with your whatever you're going through emotional or physical pain
1: um well you know when i started i had my first drink when i was a teenager and um You know, it was a curiosity. I was a kid and are you um, talking
0: early teenage? Um, You know, there's a lot of people that have been telling me they started at 10 or 11 and I can't, I can't even imagine that, but I I hear it all the time.
1: Yeah, I was 14 14? and my friend and I, um, we opened up her parents' liquor cabinet and tried something. I believe we tried Chambord, which I don't know if you're familiar with alcohol, but it's a very thick, um, like berry liqueur, not very high in alcohol content. tastes like raspberry jam. Okay. Um, you know, it was kind of gross, but then, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it tasted like, yeah, like syrup, you know, it was yucky. And, um, and then I think we made fuzzy navels at one point because my friend. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, my friend saw her parents making them. And so, um, you know, it was just, we were just experimenting with alcohol. And, you know, I think a lot of what happens in our society is that kids, we see our parents drinking mm-hmm. and we see people on TV drinking and we see advertisements. And, you know, alcohol's everywhere and Mm -hmm. everybody's doing it. And Mm -hmm. so it's just, you know, when I was a kid, it was this excitement of, Oh, well, this is what the grownups are doing. I mean, we wanted to be grown up. We wanted to wear stilettos. We wanted to wear mini skirts and we wanted to have a drink to be grown up. And so it wasn't necessarily anything. Um, it didn't start off as like, I was escaping anything. It was just, you know, it was just playing big kid. And, um, I think what I realized over time is that drinking made me feel a certain way and okay. sure um, you know it lowers your inhibitions
0: so absolutely I've watched that yes
1: yeah it it numbs you it takes it takes down all of you know a lot of times we think of people drinking to numb their pain but it also numbs all of that self doubt and so yeah. when I was a teenager and then in, into my early 20s I had a lot of self-doubt. I mean, who doesn't, you know? I was a young girl, That's Right. And so, um the alcohol, you know, I was a smart kid too. I was uh I don't know, I always felt like I didn't quite fit in. I had lots of friends, but I I don't know. I just always felt weird, like a weirdo. (laughs) So when I drink, it took away all those inhibitions, and it made me feel cool and like I fit in, and like I could go ahead and be myself without having to worry about it. And I liked that. I really, I liked that feeling. It was. It felt freeing when I was younger. And you know what?
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you. There's so many similar stories that that you're repeating. And I just wonder, do you think that's something that society has put on us?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the advertisements for alcohol. What is everybody doing? They're cool. Mm-hmm. They're having fun. They're socializing. Mm-hmm. They're becoming popular. You know, they're finding their mate. Their mate, And um, so, yeah, it's, we're conditioned to believe that, that that's what it's for. And yeah. Uh, one of the things because, that, go ahead. Uh, that I work to dismantle in my coaching. So when I talk to people about their beliefs, their underlying beliefs about alcohol and why they feel like they need it in their life, mm-hmm. a lot of those beliefs come back to those early feelings of um, I need alcohol to be cool. I need alcohol to have fun. Alcohol makes me a better version of myself. And you know, we believed those things from childhood, even before we've had our first drink is those become ingrained in our neural pathways. And mm-hmm. so in order to break free from the need to have a drink, you know, we've really got to dive back into people's brains and figure out what is it that they really believe that this alcohol is going to do for them.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: I think you're absolutely right. this that story is a common thread in so many people that end up with overdrinking and even the next step, taking that to, you know, drugs mm-hmm. or harder or harder substances
0: mm-hmm. so I, because I knew the, the gene that was in our family and how bad it was, first of all, I made sure that I did not date somebody that drank. Mm-hmm. And I didn't end up marrying anybody that drank because I didn't want it in my house for them to even sneak into it. And then I started teaching them at a very young age about the addiction in the family and what it can do to you. That doesn't mean that it worked, but I did my best. Mm-hmm. OK, um, well, I didn't have it in the house for anybody to sneak into and get Um, And they knew how I felt about it, how much it hurt in my family, the whole, you know, the whole, all the stories. Maybe I might have pushed it a little bit too much because I was so afraid. It was like when they were going into college. Um, My kids were kept very busy all through grade school and high school, and they played sports. And not that that keeps you from doing drugs, but it helped or, or alcohol. Um, a lot of your our school, in particular, um our coaches were, if I even find out on a weekend that you don't have anything that you were out somewhere drinking or doing drugs, you're off the team. They just were not going to have their teams represented by boys or girls that that did that because a lot of kids look up to the the kids in sports. Um, so that helped, except that there was, of course, hiding. I can remember both my sons telling me, you can't even imagine how many are are going like down by the river, you know, hiding in the, in the woods and whatever, you know, so they're just not out driving around and getting in trouble or they'll lie and say they're going to somebody's house. It'll be somebody else's and they'll go end up going to a parent's house that allows them to do that. Mm hmm which that would upset me. I can't, I mean, think about it. If you, if you had, do you have children? Mm-hmm. Okay. Old and old enough that they would drink if they could?
1: No, they my so? seven and nine.
0: Okay. So hey, I did have one of the podcasts that was actually seven years old when she, her first drunk. Can you imagine that? Mm. I couldn't even imagine it. I'm like, how would you even know about it? Mm-hmm. But she had older siblings that said, here, try some of this. Well, my mom and dad were outside having a big party of adults and drinking. Right. Um, so, and, and I'm not against that if somebody doesn't have you know problems with it. I don't go around telling people don't drink or whatever. But um, if it's definitely in your gene, um, definitely you see a problem within. Yeah, it's your responsibility, I feel like to teach start, start telling your children when they're old enough to understand. Teaching them anyway, all the things. So the bad things that can happen. I'm I'm talking DUIs or what what if you killed somebody driving? I mean, could you live with that? You know what I'm saying? I don't mm-hmm. think they think about those things. You know, it's just, oh, this is gonna, this is gonna make me feel cool but they don't think about the repercussions that come with it. And, you know, and I don't even mean those minor things of having hangovers or getting caught by your parents and in trouble. I'm talking about big things that they don't even think would happen. So in your book of poetry, and, and I think you had a second one, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I just came out with a second book. That's a guided journal. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So. Do you talk about any of those things or what is it that you actually talk about? Because mine's on, only on order, so I don't have it yet.
1: Well, um, it's coming tomorrow. But... Oh, well, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the first book that I wrote is my personal memoir of transformation as told through poetry. So a I... lot of, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that quit. Drinking or get sober. they write their memoirs, their, you know, the whole quitlet um, genre of books which I love myself a good memoir about sobriety. But I when I started writing about it, I realized that it was very difficult for me to write about things in the, you know, first this happened to me, then this happened, then this happened. But, um, after the alcohol, like after I was without alcohol for about a year or so, I, started to kind of have these old shame stories come up about things in my past that I'd never processed because
0: so, do you mean by somebody else bringing them up or they just came they came up
1: yeah they came up within me so mm-hmm. things that I thought I dealt with 20 years mm-hmm. ago but what I did mm-hmm. was I just drank more And Mm -hmm. so in sobriety, those things started rising to the surface and saying to me, Hey, you you know, you got to deal with me and process me. And so what I did was I started writing about them and that was my way of processing and healing myself. And, um, you know, that's an amazing
0: thing to do because that's when a lot of people relapse. Yeah. I, I, I really like that, that that's what you did. And maybe that will be something that you will suggest to somebody
1: yeah, well, exactly. And so I, which is where the journal came in. so okay. i I um began writing poetry, and poetry, for me, was a way to take things that were dark and ugly and through words and art, because poetry is a form of art. You take mm-hmm. something dark and ugly and you turn it into something beautiful. And so you have this poem that is like it's its own little thing. It's a beautiful thing. And in that process of writing, I, it relieved me of the trauma and the stress, and it was it, it, my way of processing it, of transforming it. And so, the journal that was it I just, also hard though. As well, you were writing yeah, them down, of course, it was hard. Well, yes, you know, yes, monumentally. It it was no harder than um, living it. It was easier oh, than not. I hear like, you. Let me yeah. say that it was easier than shoving it down. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it, it, to some
0: people, they don't even notice that they're shoving it down.
1: Right. Well, and I don't think I did. I mean, of course I, I didn't notice I was shoving it down for so long because I would just drown it in vodka again, you know, and, and work and all the other things. I mean, I, while I was actively drinking, I feel like I'm running all over the place, but while I was actively drinking for 25 years, I was also, I was an engineer, I was a high school teacher, I got a master's degree, I was a Fulbright scholar, I traveled to Africa, I did life, I was a professional, functioning functioning alcoholic. Yeah. But I had all of these issues and struggles and things inside. And I couldn't, I had a really hard time being alone with myself and, okay. um, you know, in the, in the evenings and weekends, I, I didn't know what else to do with myself except go to the bar. And so, um,
0: so you did go to the bar, you didn't sit at home and just get drunk and feel sorry.
1: A lot of times I went to the bar, uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so, um, but the journal that I just, that I just released like a couple weeks ago. So the idea behind the journal is a Mm -hmm. guided journal to prompt the, the, whatever you'd call them, the reader, the writer to Mm -hmm. go through that own process of their own healing and um, transformation process by using these writing prompts. And so I've organized the journal in such a way that um, it moves you through this this kind of transformative healing writing process. Much the so same way that- It's kind of exciting.
0: I'm excited because I, I feel like, and, and I haven't gotten it yet, but like I said, I, I was hoping to get it before I talked to you, but that didn't happen. Um, But I feel like those things you could use in a lot of stuff. Is that right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. The, um the, the journal is not geared specifically towards- recovery or alcohol or substance. It is very universal. Um, I think it can be, people can use it in any way that they're, they're feeling stuck or they're in places of transformation. Even like you said, you know, you're a new empty nester. And I Mm -hmm. feel like, especially for women, these points in our lives where, um, You go from not having kids to having your first child and now you're dealing with this baby and your body is no longer yours and you're in this big place of transformation. And then your kids go off to elementary school and now you're moving from, like I was a stay-at-home mom, so moving from stay-at-home mom to my kids are in school and now what am I going to do? That's a big place of transformation. And then again, empty nesting, like Okay, now they're they're off being adults and now you have your adult your own adult life back. And what do you do now? Is it a big place? And mine
0: was really bad like that because all my kids were in sports and we were constantly going to all these sports, you know, every weekend our weekends were full. And you know, when we had spring break and all that, we went as a family and we went on vacations and um and all of a sudden, just like that. There wasn't any more games to go to. Yeah. that's Even grandma and grandpa said the same thing. They're like, we don't know what to do now on the weekends because that's what we did. And I'm like, okay, but, you know, mine lived with me and ran in the bedroom and woke me up in the morning, you know, and there's none of that. It's it's just gone all of a sudden. You're like, where did those 20 years go? Where did those 30 years go? Because I've got three of them. You know, where did it go so fast? And yeah. it it's an awful feeling. I mean, I can't even tell you. And my last one was, was the worst. And I think probably because I kind of, I still had some at home, like when the first one left. Yeah. But she also was my only female. My only, you know, so I had two boys and a girl. And, but she called me every night and, mm-hmm. and maybe two or three times a day. And and then she became um, involved in college with cheerleading and um, track, and so I and she was close enough, two hours away, where I could go to those functions. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as bad as not seeing them at all, you know, or not talking to them. All. And boys are a little different at mm-hmm. first. At first, it's like they can't wait to be on their own and and be adult. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, you said this adulting thing, because um, my son's girlfriend had posted a, she posted a picture of herself, she's a senior, I believe, at the university, Um, but she had posted a picture of herself and a girlfriend, and she said, um, we had so much fun adulting tonight, so (laughs) I I sent a, a private message, and I said, so what exactly is adulting, Mm -hmm. and of course she didn't post it on the post you know she private messaged um and it was fun i just cracked up laughing because people look at adulting Mm -hmm. as old enough to go out and drink Mm -hmm. so that's adulting okay well then then kids are starting to become adult at 13 (laughs) 12 know. yeah (laughs) But she said, but at least I wasn't drinking. I was the designated driver. I'm like, okay, whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I saw the pictures. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, do you go into any of that? Or is it just strictly like your story?
1: It, in your in book. The book? In your book, yeah. Um, so it, the first book, it's just strictly my story. It's a collection of okay. poems. Of, that are my story of transformation Can some of them are, yes
0: have you always been a person that wrote stories
1: yes okay. I used to write poetry when I was in high school okay and I realize now that that was I was processing my mm-hmm. stress and trauma of high school at the time by writing about it
0: right that's
1: part of what helped me
0: Okay, so I'm sorry to interrupt you, but some of those things, if I don't, like, say them right then, then I won't remember. And and a lot of times, I mean, sometimes somebody just all of a sudden is a writer, and I do know a couple people, um, actors and actresses that had no, never had done any kind of writing before and brought their story as a recovery, like you did. Into a journal and they were encouraged to keep that raw not to have it edited and I think that's more and more and more the more books that I buy they they are non-edited and it just feels more personal Mm -hmm. you know I and I don't have anything against editing I mean I would have to have it edited if I wrote something but I see this more and more that people are writing and they're unedited, and they like somebody in their family does their their drawing of the cover, you know, or whatever. And I think that's really cool that they're out there writing these books that people can actually feel um, their pain, their their happiness, all the things, and really feel it. Whereas a lot of times when it's edited they change some of your wording and it doesn't feel feel as emotional that that person really was feeling. I don't know. I did look to see if you had the audible, but I didn't see the audible because I no. really like those.
1: Yeah. It's well, because it's a book of poetry,
0: poetry, um, right.
1: And it's illustrated. I, one of my best friends illustrated it beautifully drawing. She's the same person that illustrated the cover of my new book as well. Okay. And, so I just, I thought about ebook, auto, no, it has to be, it's a, it's a tangible piece of art. It has to be held in the hand.
0: Okay. And, and that's perfectly fine. Um,
1: I like what you said though, about the people writing their stories in this kind of real unedited way. And that's exactly what I hope people do with the journal is mm-hmm. that they take it and they write their story in it and then it becomes theirs. Right. You know, yeah, it's a book right. that I created but once people start writing in it then mm-hmm. it's theirs. It's that's their story and I want people to have this place that they can they can collect all of their thoughts and vulnerabilities and hopes and dreams into this one book that then they can write
0: right. And I hope that people don't take it as they have to. You know, this is for somebody that's um, you know recovering from alcohol. I I, 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 like I said, I can't wait to get it tomorrow so that I can really see. Um, do you know who Gabrielle Stone is?
1: Gabrielle Stone, no.
0: Okay, um, she is an actress. Her mother is Dee Wallace.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, do you know? Do, do you know who Dee Wallace is? Okay, she was the mother that played in et that's that was her one of her stories but forever she's been doing and so gabrielle's her only daughter um and gabrielle's been an actress for quite a few years and she um you know i don't really want to go into hers because i've already talked to her but she ended up through her therapy writing a book and it's very raw Mm-hmm. Um, not edited whatsoever and then she came out with the second one that's kind of like what you said so hers is a workbook but it's just of healing so it doesn't it's it's not necessarily alcohol or drugs it's it's your feelings it's your heart you know anything and I find myself using that a lot I mean, there's some instructions in there, you know, like day one and you start writing. So is that kind of what yours is like then? Do you get, do you have kind of a guidance?
1: Yes, it's absolutely guided. Yeah. It's um. so it starts with um, the element of fire, which is all about burning away your resistance okay. and igniting your sparks. So I say here in the book, You begin in the flames. The process of alchemy starts with calcination, literally meaning to burn down to the bones. In other words, you must first break apart in order to rebuild. Fantastic. This is the most strenuous phase of transformation and rebirth. There is an inertia to overcome. There are barriers to burn away so that we may find the treasure beneath. You are also igniting your spark of intention, of passion. In this section, you will discover what drives you forward and begin to fan your inner fire. So I think yeah. that regardless that's of about, yeah, and that's just the first section. So um yeah. regardless of whether it is uh you know a recovery or right. a, a life transition, empty nesting, divorce, um, you know, grief, anything like that, it, you know, we're all in this process of of metamorphosis. And mm-hmm. so I use the metaphor of the caterpillar turning into the butterfly because when the caterpillar goes into its chrysalis, its body, so it, it like sheds off its caterpillar skin right, and then right. its body literally turns into goo and in a cellular soup. It completely just becomes like a blob of sludge in order to then reform and become the butterfly. And I, th- I think a lot of people, you know, you read The Very Hungry Caterpillar to your kids and it sort of makes it sound like, well, it just goes in this cocoon and it stays there a while and some wings And then comes out, as a butterfly. Yeah. yeah, but no, it has to completely and totally come undone. And mm. when you think about in life, whenever you are in a process of your own personal transformation, there is a hit. You know, people in addiction and recovery call it rock bottom, but there in any place in your life, there is, if you're moving through growth, you come to this place where you just feel like there is nothing darker than where you are and that the struggle is so overwhelming that you just, you're never going to come out of it alive, but that is totally, totally natural and normal. That's exactly where you're supposed to be because you cannot grow wings without going through this complete unforming. And so I use that metaphor because that's I want people to feel not so alone when they're in that place of goo and darkness and realize that no, no, that's right where you're supposed to be. Now here's some tools to help you as you continue this rebuilding of yourself.
0: And so, you know, that's the whole purpose of my life struggles is to have somebody on that has a life struggle that we, we all know that somebody out there is going to have that kind of struggle and then how that person in particular conquered it. Doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way that everybody is going to conquer it, but it's an idea anyway, because there's so many people out there with no hope to recover you know what I'm saying? And so if they hear somebody else's story that is even similar to theirs, and they hear a way to do something, they're probably going to try it first. And it may not be for them, you know, but that's why I have others, you know. So that's the whole reason of starting that life struggles is to find somebody that has, you know, in the process of conquering and made some headway, you know, or has, well, you know, it depends on who I talk to. If somebody says they'll always be in recovery, or if somebody says we don't believe in that, we believe in this. So, you
1: know, yeah, it's, see, it's I, it's, it's I believe whatever. that you can be recovered. I, I, right. I don't consider myself in recovery. Right. Um, I don't consider myself to be an addict. Uh, I hear I,
0: that a lot now. Yeah. I, and that's, that's okay. There's no judgment there. It's just interesting to have all the different perspectives.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, I, I remember a guy that I was just talking to not too long ago and he he was my first youngest one, um, going through, um, self-realization. Mm-hmm. Um, so mine isn't all on, on addictions. Mine's on right. any kind of life struggle. So I have a variety. There's people that have had medical stuff, people that have had, you know, accidents and they're paralyzed from mm-hmm. their neck down. There's there's drug addicts, there's alcoholics, there's sex addicts. There's just everything, everything and anything, PTSD, yeah. you know, all those. Uh, somebody that started cutting themselves at a young age. So pretty much cover anything that could pop up. That's so there's because we know there's somebody out there that doesn't know somebody else had that. Mm -hmm. So there you go. There's some hope that, you know, these people have recovered from it. You know, they're making it. And so can you. Yeah. Okay. So with that being said, I would like you, if you could go back and and start from the beginning as to where you started, where you ended to come into writing the book, first book. If you
1: don't mind. Um, yeah, sure. Well, I, so I talked a little bit about how why I started drinking and what, right. it, what it did for me at a young age. And um so I went to an engineering school and there was a mm-hmm. lot of partying in my college and I partied mm-hmm. really hard. Um I also feel like I just I didn't have an off switch. I I really, you know, that feeling of um being able to be something, be a bigger, better version of myself. Mm -hmm. That's how I felt. Now, was that actually true on the outside? Yeah, probably Mm -hmm. not, that's how I felt. Um, and so I took that into my, my career and Mm -hmm. there were happy hours, you know, there, I, um, I was an engineer and then, um, I became a science teacher was, uh, my career changed. Teachers love to drink. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of it was not knowing at the time, but we had so many stressors going on during the day. You know, I taught at inner city schools and so, um, you know, I taught a lot of uh, underserved populations and they were wonderful students and I absolutely loved my job, but there was a lot of stressors and secondary traumas that I was taking on. And, um, I didn't have any tools on how to process that at the time. I just I didn't know what to do with it. And Did so you
0: felt like you needed to fix every child?
1: Oh yeah. um I'm you know I I've been a fixer <laughs> for mm-hmm. my whole life. I think that's part of what attracted me to that profession um the the men that I dated for most of my life were all uh shall we that say, to be so. fixed. Yes, Um, and even a lot of my friends, um, girlfriends, sometimes were ones that just—I don't know—they needed me. I felt like they needed me, and so right. And I
0: think that's a big deal. That I mean is a common denominator in abusers um, because it's too much. It's way too much. You can't, and especially when you start feeling guilty because you weren't able to help them. You know, I mean, it just keeps going on. So. Uh, yeah. But I I hear that a lot, and I'm guilty of it myself. I got my degree in psychology and thought I was going to save the world. Right, can't be done.
1: Right. Well, what's funny now? I mean, it's I don't know if it's funny, but um, so as a coach, I am mm-hmm. now helping people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm still a helping profession, but um, but what's so different now is that having that realization in sobriety of the role that I was playing in every single codependent relationship I ever had, this belief that I could somehow fix somebody else, that I could like solve their problems for them. So essentially me pouring my energy into a black hole and just giving of myself until I was so drained that I had nothing left. Having that realization and then being able to do a lot of those turnarounds and self-work on myself to realize uh, how I could stop playing that role in relationships and how to set some of my own boundaries so that when I'm now in coaching relationships, it is no longer a relationship of me trying to fix the other person or give advice to the other person or solve their problems but rather uh, <clears throat> facilitating or guiding them to take their own control and their own power back. And so it's like a completely different relationship now that I have with people I work with than I had for the whole rest of my life with Okay, students. So then
0: I want to go to where, where and how did you get to that point where you went, okay, it's time to stop. Them to
1: stop drinking and yes.
0: And to change what you were doing.
1: Yeah. Well, um, so my kids were two and four when I made the decision to stop drinking and, um, Was that you on know, your own? yes, I made the decision on my own. Um, mm-hmm. so I initially in December I, um, of 2017, I saw a video of myself on Facebook at a local bar, I was 41 years old and I was drunk and I was dancing in the bar and I was there on social media and I saw this image of myself and it just, for some reason, it just had a huge impact on me of, wow, that is not the woman I want to be. And that is not the mom that I want to be to my kids, you know, and I drove home that night, um, and so I had decided that I was going to make some big changes for the new year. I was going to cut way back on drinking. I was only going to have like one drink a night and maybe four if it was a special occasion. So I've, I had written this all in <laughs> my journal. It was like my New Year's resolutions. So that was on January 1st. I managed to make it through New Year's Eve. I had four drinks, you know, I wasn't really very drunk and I was so proud of myself. Well, um, January 6th, rolled around. And I don't know what really happened that day. It's an unmemorable day, except that that night something bad enough happened that I decided to have more than one drink and then two and maybe three, and then maybe a bottle or two of wine. And the next morning I woke up totally hungover. Um, I had wet the bed. I, my kids were asleep in the other rooms. Um, And that morning, I just woke up and realized that I could not control it, that I thought I could control this. I couldn't control it. It had control over me. It was a very, very difficult realization. Um, I think that the most difficult thing that I ever did was admitting that to myself because it was something I knew forever. I knew it. I knew I drank more than I should. I knew Mm -hmm. that I probably had a problem. I, you know, I, but I didn't ever want to admit it. If I ever said it out loud to anybody other than myself and the reflection in the mirror, then that would make it real. So I just like, I ignored it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that moment, I finally, I finally admitted it to myself. And so um, the very first thing I did pretty much every morning was look at my phone, check Facebook and you know, that kind of business. So I picked up my phone that morning. And the very first thing I saw on Facebook was a post from a friend, an old high school friend of mine from long, long ago that I hadn't really talked to in years. We used to drink together. And his Facebook page said, Hey, I don't normally post these things, but I just wanted to say today marks my five-year sobriety anniversary. And I thought, okay, there's the sign. Like, that's the sign that I need. And so before I could talk myself out of it, I sent him a message on Facebook messenger. And I said, Hey, haven't talked to you in a while. Um, I think I might need to quit drinking. I'm terrified period send. And he messaged me back. And, um, that is what really helped me. So that was the very first, like, thing that helped me realize, okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm actually good. So so you had to
0: first start out by admitting it to yourself and then to somebody else.
1: Yes, exactly. Saying the words out loud, even if it was just in a text was, yeah, it was like solidifying it. And um, so I had ordered two books off Amazon and one of them was This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. And that book, I started reading that book that day. And that book, um, absolutely helped me completely shifted my mind and the way I thought about alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. that's the program now that I've been trained. I've actually been trained by Annie Grace and her team to be that's so program. nice program. But yeah, so I did not. I never went to a recovery meeting. Um, AA just didn't. Uh, I don't know. It just didn't resonate with me um and there wasn't any other at the time in my community there wasn't any other kinds of recovery groups that i could find right. and so um what i did do was i started going to yoga i started meditating um i was reading all of these quitlit and self help books i was journaling i started going to women's retreats and like just really diving into my self work and mm-hmm. Um, and then I started writing. I started writing a blog. So I think what helped me immediately was doing all that work on myself. Um, outside of just the- Did
0: somebody, I'm sorry, did somebody encourage you to write or is that just because you were had already been writing before then you just decided to start writing stuff down?
1: No, I I had a friend that encouraged me to write a blog. Okay. And so when I first started writing a blog, I did so under a pseudonym because I was very, okay. I was really scared about um, just being vulnerable in public. Sure, sure. Now that pseudonym's long gone and I'm just like full on out there. Of course.
0: Okay, so this this is kind of amazing to me because it sounds like you haven't used any of the programs that were out there. You created your own. And I, yeah. I really like that you were able to do that. Unfortunately, not everybody's going to be able to do that. But with the stuff that you're doing, I think it gives to me anyway, and maybe it's my state of mind, but gives me encouragement and that I could do this myself, um, but with guidance. Hey, so did you have somebody to talk to? Um Like, you know, let's say you, you said five years, you're five years, you've been sober, right?
1: Just about. Yeah.
0: Okay. So close to five years. Have you, have you had those times when you, when you did drink during those five years and then you went back to not drinking again?
1: Yes. So I haven't, it hasn't been five years since alcohol's crossed my lips. It's been five years. I count that date as the day I decided to change my life. that's
0: And that's, that's, I think, the new way to do it.
1: Yeah. Because... because everything after that date was part of that journey to rediscover. Right. And,
0: and so many, the old ways were, okay, now you've relapsed, so you start over. And I yeah, don't think I, that's good.
1: Oh, I, I hated that idea because I thought, mm-hmm. um, well, you know, I actually took three months after three months after that date, I decided to change my life. I took a... Um, purposeful break from sobriety for one night because I went to visit an old college friend. So mm-hmm. I told her, I was like, I'm sober, but I'm going to take a break from sobriety just for this one night. So, like, <laughs> And I did. And we went out. I had vodka tonics. I even bought a pack of cigarettes. It was like all out. Woke Isn't up. Funny how morning.
0: smoking goes with drinking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I felt horrible. horrible. <laughs> and it took me a week to get back to where i had been after 3 months of not drinking but i had people ask me oh so what's your new sobriety date then your new sobriety date i was like what do you mean new sobriety date like it's january 7th like <laughs> it's right. the day i decided to quit like this was just a you know this was just a trial period to see if i was really making the right decision and yeah i was that drinking that sucked i don't want to do that anymore so like it was just part of the journey there was no shame around oh, I fell off the wagon and I did this. I mean, I felt the old saying, I fell off
0: the wagon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I felt horrible physically. Like it knocked me down. But what it also did was gave me this new resolve to just be like, well, okay. Yeah, I guess I had to try that one more time to really see that I am done with it and so i tell people that my clients all the time you know when people um annie grace has a term that she uses called data points so when you've decided that you're going to quit drinking but then you have a drink (laughs) she calls that a data point which i love Mm -hmm. as a scientist because if it's data that means that you are obligated to investigate it Right. right you have to look at that and be like okay What caused me to drink? How did I feel about it? You know, what happened and investigate and break it down and use that as information and tools to help you in your process of letting go of it. Because I think that idea that, that you can just one day wake up and be like, I'm never going to drink again. And then you never drink again. Like if that's, if that's you, great. Good for you. Congratulations. That's awesome. But a lot of people that doesn't work. And so you know, you wake up one day and you say, "I'm never gonna drink again," and then you fall flat on your face, time and time and time again, until at one point, you know, maybe you mm-hmm. don't even realize that that's the last time you're gonna fall on your face. But then it is, and and then like I don't even think about it anymore. I don't, I don't really have triggers or cravings. It's just it's a non-issue to me. I'm not concerned that somebody's gonna invite me out to a bar and then like the smell of the drinks are gonna make me salivate and like it's just I just. I'm not there I don't have the same relationship with alcohol that I used to
0: Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of people that certain conditions or situations or people that they're with can trigger those things and so I I hope that people understand that some of it is part of a personality too
1: um, I, well, sure. I mean, I, I think it's part of personality and circumstance and all that, but I also truly believe that everybody can get to the place where it's a non-issue.
0: I believe that. I think that. so too. I, I, I think that. so too. If, but you have, to, the problem is getting them to believe that.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing is it's that's all about changing thing. your neural right. pathways and your beliefs in in your brain. If you believe that you will always be triggered, guess what? you'll always be be triggered yeah
0: so so for me and this might be a poor example but it's so I talked earlier about you know one of the reasons why I never started doing anything was because I watched watched it destroy lives Um, but I don't know that I mentioned that I was actually afraid of it but it's not that I was afraid of becoming it was afraid of when I watched uh, my sister or my brother or my dad or my aunt or my uncle going through this, what I saw was something controlling them. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the feeling of not having control of myself or some people that that, that in, inhibited, how do you say it, in, in- uninhibited? In- they come yeah Yeah. so so here's what happened my mother was uh dying of lung cancer and one of her last words to me was please don't smoke Mm -hmm. okay i was never a go out and buy your cigarettes type smoker i was a social smoker Only it was with a couple of friends that would like come over to sit outside on the porch and just visit and they smoked and, and so I would. Um, But I like, I watched people, you know, that worked in the office with me and it didn't matter how cold it was or how much it was raining or whatever, you know, they had to get out there and take that cigarette break every hour. And then asked me to go and I'm like, I don't need, I don't need to have one because I was, what they call a social smoker. So it was only under those circumstances. So then to me, that meant I didn't have an addiction to smoking. Mm-hmm. When my mom asked me not to, I promised her that I wouldn't. And so what I knew in my mind was okay, the first thing I need to do then is to talk to those people that come over to visit and tell them that I'm going to have to take a break from that for a while while I figure this out right so three months three months I didn't have anybody come over I didn't the people I had two people that were calling me that would sit there and smoke and I could hear them smoking so I would go borrow a cigarette from the neighborhood and uh that was ridiculous you know I felt like crap like I got I got these headaches just like a hangover because what I do is I'd like smoke and smoke and smoke over on the phone all at once Instead of like somebody that you know has one an hour or whatever, right? Anyway, um, so I took myself out of the situation, and and that to me was just the only way that I was going to be able to do it. Three months now. Those those several people were mad at me for doing that. They they felt like I was punishing them, but that's not what I was trying to do. I was trying to um, so my problem my issue my way and keep a promise to my mom some people would say you know well is that doing it for yourself or for your mom well I think I was doing it for both but regardless so went through all that didn't smoke whatever uh seven months later again in the middle of the night I woke up and I wanted a cigarette never had that before well, I wasn't talking to anybody or anything. And when you hear this again, I'm an adult. I can make that decision. I, I wasn't, it wasn't something that was causing problems in my life or anything like that. Um, but I snuck out of the house very quietly. This is bad. I went to my car. I I had this feeling that if I started started it. I would wake people up so I put it neutral and I pushed it down our driveway and I got it in that's crazy isn't it and I got it into the street and I started to get in the car and I went what am I doing like I don't need this but to think that I had to hide it there was nobody to hide it from my my husband didn't care one way or the other that was my decision. My kids never knew I did. You know, I didn't smoke in front of them. I went, no, absolutely not. I am not going down there. I'm not letting this thing control me. And I started it up and I pulled back in the driveway, shut it off and came in the house and I never had it again now. And that's been 30 years or so. But here's the thing. When I was talking to a doctor who specializes and these addictions and stuff so i was telling him about that and i said i just i don't know what happened when it was just like out of the blue and he's so and i believe this some people may not i believe this he said you could have been watching a movie before you went to sleep and somebody was smoking on there and that you know the the last thing that you're seeing or thinking about before you go to sleep can make a trigger um Or he, you know, he said something like that, or having a dream where, you know, thinking back about a friend and you're sitting there talking and at that. I said, maybe, I mean, I don't, I don't remember the dream, so I can't say if that's true or not, if that's what happened, but it really gave me a different look on things that could trigger things. Mm -hmm. And I do look for those. So, so I can stop them before I get out in the driveway and push my car down it. I haven't done it in years but you know that I know that's not a big deal but to me it was a big deal because I really realized that I was doing something that I hiding something even that I really didn't need to but yeah you know so it was a problem it was obviously a problem so that that helped me
1: yeah and I think when we realize um that it's we can take our power back from the substance. That it's entirely possible. That doesn't mean it's easy. Oh God, <laughs> it knows. doesn't mean it's easy, but that it is possible. And once you have, I think once you start cultivating this awareness of, wow, I was just controlled by my thoughts about this this addictive substance. I just right. I did this thing that I told myself I wasn't going to do, because mm-hmm. I allowed this this my own thoughts about this addictive substance to to control me once you have awareness of that then it's like you're seeing it happen and now you've got space to choose whether or not it's going to happen the next time and you know it's just I mean I don't want it to sound easy like that oh I just need to choose it's a very I think it's a very challenging um conversation that you have to have with yourself
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 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 I guess that's where you know I'm leading up to because I know there's a lot of people that can't even have that conversation with themselves or don't want to you know they need to but they don't want to so a lot of times they have to go all the way down that rabbit hole yeah. and and either somebody else has to pull them out yeah. and make them get it sometimes it's a person sometimes it's that person that just realizes, okay, I have absolutely nothing left. I've lost everything, you know. So all of us have different different things. You make it sound like it was easy for you, and I don't think it was. Um, I don't think you. am I right? It wasn't easy. Yeah,
1: it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Um, I think at that point in my life, the decision became clearer easy is not the right word but the the no. what I had to do for my own life and for my children became clearer and so in that way I guess making that decision was easy if that makes sense and,
0: yes it is and the, you know the way that you brought your children into that I like that because I have a very special friend that absolutely stopped for her child and a lot of people say you don't you can't stop for somebody else you have to do it for yourself but she was in recovery because she was forced into recovery by her parents who had picked up her three-year-old son who she forgot to pick up because she was drinking okay and you can't do that anymore you can't force people anymore i don't i don't know where you live or what state you're in but around here, nobody can make a choice for you, you know, you you can't be forced into it, unless it's court ordered, you know, if you had a bunch of DUIs, or a bunch of drunk bust, or whatever, but, and that, and then that doesn't even help, that actually makes it worse, because the people that go into those are just pissed off that they've been forced, and as soon as they get out, they do it worse, so, or they continue to do it, not necessarily worse, but anyway, what got her was So she was in recovery in this recovery center and she was playing the game of, you know, okay, well, if I do this, I know they're going to let me out. So this is all I have to do. Well, Easter time came and this particular place had these great big stone walls all the way around um, from where you could walk out of the dining room. And then there was all this grass. And so they plant, they planted little Easter eggs for people that had kids coming to visit them. And so her mom and dad had brought her son. And he was running around this cute little thing with his basket, picking up Easter eggs. And it was inside this great big brick wall. And she, that's all it took. She looked at that and she said, I owe him more than that i am not ever going to do this again and she hasn't however she's she's had lots and lots of trauma in between she's had a lot of death in the family she's had you know her son's friend drowning while she had him on a vacation with him a lot of traumatic things that could have pushed her into drinking but here's this little boy But at three years old, she looked at and said, no, can't do that to him. But what's the neatest thing is at eight years old, at eight years old, he asked his mom if he could have a birthday party at the house. And she said, sure. And he said, I can't wait to tell them that that you've been sober for five years. And she said, it made me happy, but yet it saddened me that this 8 year old was so excited that he was going to tell his friends my mom's been sober for 5 years when some of them might not even know what that meant um and that just kept her going and today this day those two are like this and they support each other in in absolutely everything so he did save her not knowingly at the time but her using him as this is this is what I'm doing it for helped her so when people say you have to do it for yourself not not for somebody else I still believe she she started out by doing some you know for somebody else but of course it ended up being for her too Mm -hmm. just wondered what your thoughts were on that
1: yeah I think you know especially when you think about your own children there's a very, uh, it's a very muddled area between what is really doing it for them and for yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you're a mother. You know that that doing something for your child is like doing something for yourself. Doing something doing for yourself. yourself. Your and child is like your own heart, like walking around inside another human. So so and vice versa you know doing something for yourself
0: because we do i mean all of us know that we have to take care of ourselves first before we can take care of somebody else or people should know that anyway right um so yeah it works both ways okay so like i said you made it sound easy and i know it wasn't i i hope that people can take out of this how strong you are, because I believe that you're really strong. Um, and I believe there was probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you're, you're very intelligent. I don't know anything about your childhood or anything like that. And it doesn't have to come from your childhood. So many people say it does, you know, they had some kind of trauma. It doesn't have to come from some kind of trauma. It it can be simply your own, nothing to do with your parents, And you just didn't feel like you fit in with somebody, you know, or you could be overweight and not even bullied, but you see it yourself. And that's, you know, there's a lot of reasons that people can give for what happened. It's not always a childhood trauma. They like to say something like that a lot of times. But to me, that's putting blame on when once we're an adult, that's when we have to accept what we're doing and forgive ourselves that's the other thing so the the last person I was talking to was you know talking about the 12-step program only theirs is a little different they made one up um but I said I said you know I think I've only seen it a couple times so I like looked it up I googled it and I said you know there's nothing in there that says you need to forgive yourself and I think that's so important. Like, I would be like a number one there because when yeah. you're not, you know, if you're not forgiving yourself, you're going to be doing it all over again to cover up that pain.
1: Yeah. Shame is one of the biggest barriers to change. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I'm like, I'm, I think I'm going to get a hold of AA and tell them they need to add that stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> Why would it not say to forgive yourself?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know much, but I I do know that forgiving yourself is one thing that I work on with people a lot and with myself on a daily basis. I feel like, you know, I'm always doing something. I'm a parent of a nine-year-old boy (laughs) and I'm always doing something wrong and I need to forgive myself for. So yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, kids don't come with a book, do they?
1: No, it's the hardest
0: job ever. It is the hardest job ever. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I have told my kids that are adults now, but I have told them until the day I die, I'm still your mother. Yeah. And I will still tell you the truth. I will still tell you when I think you're wrong, when you need to change things. Doesn't mean they're going to do it, but you're always my job until I die. And they've had to accept that. (laughs) They don't, like I said, they don't have to listen to me, you know, and, but uh, at least I feel like I've said something, you know, to put it maybe in their mind. I still feel like I'm doing my duty as a mother.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, So you, you went ahead and you wrote a book and then you wrote a second book. Now, why did you decide to write the second book?
1: Well, the second book is the journal. So that's the one that, um, right. Is, yeah. It's meant to be a guide for others. But did to- you make
0: yourself one? Is that where that came from?
1: Um, not necessarily that I made myself one, but I, what I, I used kind of the same pathway that I took when I was writing. So I started by writing a lot of the darkness and the the shame and the, the processing of the old thing. So that the fire, the burning away, and then, um, you know, started being able to just be more vocal about speaking my truth and finding my voice. And then, um, the third, so that's air. And then the third stage is water. So coming to life, like blossoming, finding, finding what really makes you flow and Mm -hmm. who you are, your identity. And then, The fourth stage is earth, which is a grounding and a stability and an arrival in, you know, just this sense of self rooting down in order to grow up, grow your wings upward.
0: So I I feel like some of that comes from meditation. Is that where you got some of that? I remember you saying that you did some meditation and those are some of the things that are brought up in meditation,
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. meditation and yoga. I have a really um strong yoga practice So and, when you
0: say yoga because I'm a yoga instructor, are you talking about yoga meditation or strengthening and toning and like deep breathing relaxation?
1: both both okay, I feel, okay. I, when i I feel like when I do yoga, it oftentimes it helps me move through writer's block. It helps I get some of my best inspirations after yoga practice.
0: I think everybody should do yoga. I, yeah. I really do. It's, it's an amazing. And I, you know, it's funny because like I said, I teach it and women come in and they think that um, this is, this is going to be easy. <laughs>
1: right? They
0: right. don't realize all those muscles they don't use that are so weak. Um, but I take it, you know, at their pace. Um, I do private individual so I have a private gym at my boutique that I have. And I just do individual, I don't do classes. I do individual one-on-one. And that way I can go their pace. Also, they're not embarrassed if they don't know, you know, they can't get it right and all that kind of stuff. Cause I want them to keep coming. And that stops a lot of people from going to gyms. You know, gyms is a going to work out is a really big thing with any kind of addicts that, you know, are trying to stay sober. They have to, you don't seem like that, but a lot that I've talked to have to be busy all the time Mm -hmm. to keep their mind off of stuff. So it's still kind of blocking stuff, but I I don't take it that way. They say it that way, but a lot of them go to the gym and they might be there three hours a day. Yeah. You know, but
1: I mean, you know, you still, we need tools. And if I think physical Exercise and activity is a great tool. Well, it's certainly not hurting them. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's a good tool.
0: Yeah, and so, um but anyway, the ones that I have talked to that started to do that and didn't go back was because they they saw people staring at them, or some people were even rude enough to come up and say something to them. Mm-hmm. And so those 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 are ones that I personally life coach and teach them how to come out of themselves and not worry about what other people think or say, you know, Um, but anyway, so yeah, the women that I have taught, I do start at, at the very beginning and I, I don't change them until I see that their body is ready. So we might do the same three or four poses, exercises for, you know, a month. And then I'm like, okay, you're ready now. You're strong enough to pull yourself up and blah, blah, blah. And so I don't do like brain meditation. I just do like the deep breathing and relaxation, like before and afterwards. And, and also during, you know, to, to it's, it's a matter of your core and, and how you're breathing. Um, I was told by one lady came into there, into my boutique. And so she goes to my church she said so I heard you're doing yoga real snappy." and I said yeah did you know you're sinning no how am I sinning Mm -hmm. Um, long story short she went to our minister of the church and told him that I was sinning that I was teaching yoga and uh, so he called me we had a a discussion about it and he said are you praying to Buddha I said (laughs) no no um but if somebody's buddhism that's their business i don't teach it that's not you know but no no i was doing deep breathing um i do not. i don't even think it's legal anymore to if you're teaching to bring up religion at all so we don't we're not praying Mm -hmm. you know we're deep breathing and i'll tell them you know like at the end, lay down. I want you to look up at the ceiling and clear your mind of everything that went on today and just lay there in that, in nothing. That that's not praying. You know, that's just getting rid of all the junk that was yeah. in there all day. And that's good for your mind. So, yes, it is. Um, So I was just curious, is that like the type of yoga that you do? Do you do both?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think yoga is just—it's very personal, mm-hmm. very personal. That it's, it's—it's between the practitioner and their own breath. <laughs>
0: I'll tell you what—I just have never found anything that I like better,
1: yeah.
0: And and that you get so much more value out of.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. And then people don't think there's any cardio in there either until you get farther along down the road, and then they're like, "Man, that was really hard." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can be, but you know, like that, that also gives us strength both mentally and physically. So, okay. So do, so here's what I'm going to ask you for the end. First of all, what has been your biggest life struggle?
1: Um, My biggest life struggle. I think my, <laughs> well, I'll give you the, The real answer, I guess. My biggest life struggle is figuring out how to be a parent. (laughs) It really is. It really is. I think that um, as hard as making the decision to quit drinking was, or as hard as going through that process, Mm -hmm. um, even harder is dealing with the challenges of. And the responsibility of raising these little humans without, yeah, without, like, there's no numbing tools, you know, there's no numbing, there's no drinking it away, there's no mommy wine juice, it's just, it's me and, you know, my own brain figuring this stuff out, and so that, I think, is is the biggest struggle is realizing you you know you really have to do this all on your own without there's no magic juice that's going to take it away. So
0: until and I agree that's that's probably mine although I didn't think about that for a really long time but the you know each child is different so Like I said, there's no book that comes with them, but each child is different. So you have to figure out how you work with that child, have to figure out how their mind works. But think of all the ways that they hurt you. You know, and they don't mean to, you know, but it's a hard job and we don't always make the right decisions. And our children get mad at us, you know, and they don't understand why we're doing that. And it's hard. It's, it's hard to watch them mad at you when you know that you're trying to do the right thing for
1: them. Yeah. We could do a whole nother hour we long. Really could. So, but <laughs> the I mean, thing I, about it is I want to say this though, because uh-huh. while that is the biggest life struggle, it's also okay. the biggest joy. Joy. Yeah. And I think that that right there is the beauty of the dichotomy of life. And that's what I was maybe missing with the excessive alcohol drinking for all those years is that that you can hold both of those things in your hand at the same time the biggest struggle and the biggest joy and like in that it just fills your heart up so much so you know what I didn't ask so how
0: many years of drinking did you have
1: Um, like when it was a
0: big problem
1: well I drank for 25 years I drank for 25 years there were times okay. when it was a bigger problem than others. <laughs> okay. There were, there was a time in my twenties where it was a way bigger problem. And then there was a time in my thirties when I was, you know, pregnant and stuff where it wasn't as big of a problem. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: So then, wow, that's a tough one to come up. Cause my last question then is what advice would you give to other people? Cause that's what we're about is to conquer whatever struggle they're going through.
1: Um, well, I, what, I do have some advice that's kind of specific to, to mm-hmm. alcohol, but maybe you could apply it to anything. Okay. That, um, the stop asking the question of, do I have a problem? Do I have a drinking problem? And mm-hmm. start asking the question of is what I'm doing let's say alcohol, is it Mm -hmm. adding to my life or is it making my life more challenging? Mm -hmm.
0: That's a good one.
1: Because if we can really take an honest look at the things that we're doing and decide if they're helping us be better people or if they're getting in the way, then that's where we can really know what we need to start looking at and what we need to change. Okay. So
0: here's a tough one for you because you have that mindset Already of perfecting yourself, getting better yourself, whatever. But what about these people that don't have that kind of mindset? How do we get them to understand that they're not alone, that there is a way out of that rabbit hole or situation that they're in? Do you have any suggestions for that?
1: Well, I think everybody's got that flickering inside of them, that flickering of hope. That there is something better. Um, I think that you you know sometimes it's really hard to see it. It's really hard right. to believe it, but that flickering of of hope is in there. And, um, you know, I I I think that writing journaling is a really great place to start. And you know, finding someone to talk to whether it's, you know, a sponsor or whether it's someone at a church or a coach or a therapist or a friend that you can trust or whatever, but finding someone to talk to.
0: I'm glad you said that because I've had several people say to me, well, I quit, I quit going to a counselor, I quit going to a, a sponsor, blah, 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 because they just weren't working for me. I'm like, okay, so, but you don't stop because not everybody is the right person for us. Even a friend, I, you know, I have, I teach this to my kids too. You can have a lot of people that, you know, but you really only need two really good friends or maybe even one really good friend that, you know, that will tell you the truth that you can count on no matter what. And I don't mean taking advantage of them or anything, but, you know, um, but find that person, and it might not be your friend. You know, it might not be them that understands what you're going through, but there's always somebody. You just have to keep searching mm-hmm. until you find that right person. And for some, it might be somebody that they don't know at all, but they just somehow click and they feel like they can share everything without being judged. But don't stop. Don't stop. And then I wanted to know do you do you know that the federal government gave out a now they there's a nine eight eight number that anybody can call, and it's a free call.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah.
0: So I want to reiterate that just to the people that are listening, I try to on every one of them because I don't know that they they understand how it works. So, for instance, what whatever. Uh, state you're from or county or whatever and if you've lived there all your life you've probably had the same cell phone number but a lot of times people leave you know move and they still have that same cell phone number that they started out with when you call 988 which is the number um, it goes by your area code to what state it connects it to so just so everybody knows one of the first things they'll ask you because of that number not changing is what state are you calling from? Even though they're told you're going to get somebody right away from your state, it, like I said, if it's a wrong area code from where you're at, or you could be on vacation, you could be visiting, whatever you need the help. So you have to say what state you're in. Um, but it's it's a wonderful thing that they've come out and it is a free call.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is great.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's let's just for for the ending tell people where they can get your book, which I already know, but go ahead and tell them where they can get. And if do you answer any questions if somebody wants to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, sure. So first of all, um, my book is called Elemental Alchemy: A mm-hmm. Journal, a guided journal for transformation, and it's available on Amazon. So if you search elemental alchemy journal, it will pop right up. It's got butterflies on the cover. Um, and I can be reached, um, my website is soulstruthcoaching.com and I can be reached at sky at soulstruthcoaching or through my website. So if anyone has any questions or, uh, wants to contact me about, coaching or the journal or the anti-grace programs or anything like that um they can find me there i'm also on facebook soul's truth coaching and instagram
0: okay so the whole thing i mean like if you just looked up soul's truth would it come up or do you need to put
1: the whole thing coaching soul's truth coaching okay okay okay
0: all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm I'm yeah, so excited to get the book tomorrow. Because i am yeah, really curious
1: what you I think loved. about it.
0: <laughs> um I like I read like everybody that I interview, I like to read their books so that I know that person better. So usually I try to get them read before I do it, but ran out of time this time. Anyway, um, I appreciate you so much coming on. I think you have a lot of valuable information for people i encourage everybody to get her book um both of her books but the second one to me sounds like it's more of a help to them to help through their recovery the first one to understand where you're coming from is that is that kind of what you're thinking
1: yeah the journal elemental alchemy journal is definitely um something that people can use for their own work
0: so yeah. when you're when you're coaching somebody do you tell them to get the journal well
1: the Life. journal just came out a couple weeks ago so uh yeah I probably I'll will now on
0: there right away
1: yeah okay yeah well, October 27th I think is when it became live yeah
0: so are is that what you're starting to tell people though when you're coaching them is to make sure they get that journal
1: oh yeah absolutely mm-hmm okay
0: So before then, what did you use? Just write stuff down?
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right.
0: Okay. Well, I'm super excited. And thank you for coming on and for giving me your time and for helping so many people out there.
1: Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having this podcast and I hope it helps a lot of people.
0: And that's another wrap. You know, it just amazes me every time I have somebody... I just feel so blessed that I am able to do this and reach out to so many people with all of the life struggles. Please help us by supporting us by taking this episode and all the other episodes that you've listened to. Rate us. Share it as much as possible to any and everybody that you know of that it could in some way help because that's what Life Struggles Podcast is all about, helping others with their life struggles. See you next time.